Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 12, of course. And uh, we are looking at part two of Fear the Executioner of Both Body and Soul, which uh, will probably be at least a four-part mini-series within our series of Luke. In a fairly recent uh, movie, The Fellowship of the Rings, uh, one of the first of uh, three uh, motion pictures that uh, followed after J.R. Tolkien's classic Lord of the Rings fantasy fiction trilogy, there's a scene in the Prancing Pony Inn where Frodo Baggins, owner of the Ring of Power, trips and falls in this pub full of people and uh, he, he disappears in front of everybody. Watching from the corner is a uh, mysterious figure covered in a cloak who Frodo has noticed has been watching him. He asks the innkeeper about him, but the innkeeper says his name is Strider. He's a ranger and he's a, a very mysterious person. Well, unbeknown to Frodo, Strider is there to protect him from those who desire to get a hold of the ring and use it for evil purposes. While invisible, Frodo crawls away from the crowd, takes off the ring, and Strider eyes him, grabs him, pulls him into a back room, and begins to lecture him sternly. Frodo doesn't really understand either the significance of the ring, nor the imminent danger that he is in. Strider explains that nine evil spirits called ring wraiths are hunting after him to kill him and take the ring. Strider then sternly asks Frodo, are you scared? He replies, yes. And then Strider says, apparently not scared enough. While there are no hobbits or ring race in real life, there are angels and there are demons and there is a holy God whose wrath abides on all unrepentant sinners. And I think that if you were to ask the billions alive on the planet today, are you scared? Most would say, scared of what? I'm sure most wouldn't even know what to be scared of. Even those who would admit that they believed in a God, that he is a holy God and a just God, I think we would be justified in asking them, apparently you're not scared enough. Because most people, even though they may say they believe in the Bible and may say that um, God is to be feared, don't fear God enough. They kind of treat God as, yeah, that's something that is true of a certain class of people. But of course, it couldn't be true of me because I'm a pretty good person. In our text, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is waging war against lies, against deceptions, against religious hypocrisy and the unbelief of men. Jesus did say, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus does exhort us to be peacemakers. But what a lot of people don't understand is what that means. Jesus is not saying, what I want you to do is, is try and be in peace with everybody 
at any cost possible. Jesus is not talking about being at peace between men. The blessed peacemakers are those who, through preaching the gospel, lead other people to be reconciled to their God and creator, who before they repent and believe is angry at them, whose wrath abides upon them, and who will judge them and cast them into hell unless they repent. I think you would be able to find a few people who have a healthy fear of God, but it is a very rare few. There is this false idea among many today that Jesus walked around saying, God is only loving. God is only compassionate, merciful, gracious, forgiving and long-suffering. He wants you to be healthy and rich and have your best life now. These are lies from the pit of hell. The reason most do not fear God is because preachers have preached a lopsided view of Jesus Christ. Jesus has been reduced to this kind of sentimental, sin-tolerating, peace-at-all-cost, spineless, jellyfish kind of guy. False teachers can be easily recognized because they only emphasize Jesus' patience, forgiveness, compassion, and love to the exclusion of of the others. And in doing this, they portray a Jesus who isn't the savior. Any Jesus who is only those things is not the real Jesus. They don't mention his warnings of judgment and hell for those who do not repent. They don't mention his hard demands for those who wishes to be his disciples. They fail to teach their congregation that Jesus in the Gospels, in his humiliation, is being presented. That is, when we see Jesus in the Gospel, this is like Jesus' light. This is Jesus who is humbling himself and allowing men to persecute him and eventually kill him. But believe me, the humiliation of Jesus is over. Jesus will never be humbled by men again. But even when we look at Jesus in his humiliation, he is nothing like most preachers present him to be. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 49, a text we may get to someday. Jesus tells us, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. This is your Savior. This is your Savior, the one who longs, aches to see the world wiped out in fire. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Speaking of his crucifixion, do you suppose that I came to grant peace in the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. 
From now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There we go. There's Jesus. There's Jesus. Is he loving? Yes. Merciful? Yes. Kind, compassion, gracious? Yes. But he's also this. You take away this part of Jesus... You don't have the Savior. You're preaching a false gospel. Now, you may read a text like this and you go, well, Jack, how can this be? I mean, how can we reconcile this? I mean, how can we reconcile this with Jesus being the Prince of Peace and telling us to be peacemakers? And yet, and yet Jesus saying things like this and knowing that we're supposed to follow him. How can we reconcile that? Well, it's pretty easy once you dispatch with the world the definitions of peace and love. The peace that we are to strive for is to see men reconciled with their creator. Because Isaiah makes it clear there is no peace for the wicked. They are constantly at enmity, conflict with their creator. And so by being a peacemaker, we're being those who share the gospel with others so that they're no longer under the wrath of God. And love, what is love? Well, it's not feeling, it's not emotion, it's not sex. Love is to do what is best for other people, regardless of how they may feel about it. To do what is best for them according to the word of God. This is the loving thing to do. To introduce them to Jesus so that they don't perish in hell. And as soon as you understand this, then you begin to have a clear view of who Jesus is. But I want you to know, in our culture, this is a hard road to travel. Because most people, most professing Christians, don't want to hear about Jesus being the judge of the living and the dead. They don't want to hear about heaven. They don't want to hear about hell in the same breath. Heaven's fine, but not heaven and hell in the same breath. They just want to lop off the hell part. They want to lop off repentance from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They just want the believe part without obeying, without submitting, without trusting in Christ and letting him rule their life. But of course, anybody who loves other people wants to see them place their faith in Jesus alone for salvation so that they don't end up in eternal torment in hell at the hand of Jesus, the Savior. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, addresses this very issue. Bear with me as I read a rather lengthy quote, but Ryle says it better than I ever could. Quote, God knows 
Rao says, that I never speak of hell without pain and sorrow. I would gladly offer the salvation of the gospel to the very chief of sinners. I would willingly say to the vilest and most profligate of mankind at his deathbed, repent and believe on Jesus and thou shalt be saved. But God forbid that I should ever keep back from mortal man that scripture reveals a hell as well as a heaven and that the gospel teaches that men may be lost as well as saved. The watchman who keeps silent when he sees a fire is guilty of gross neglect. The doctor who tells us we are getting well when we are dying is a false friend. The minister who keeps back hell from his people in his sermons is neither a faithful nor charitable man. Where is the charity of keeping back any portion of God's truth? He is the kindest friend who tells me the whole extent of my danger. Where is the use of hiding the future from the impenitent and the ungodly? Surely it is like helping the devil. If we do not tell them plainly that the soul that sinneth shall surely die. Who knows the wretched carelessness of many baptized persons arises from this, that they have never been told plainly of hell. Who can tell but thousands might be converted if ministers would urge them more faithfully to flee from the wrath to come? Verily, I fear we are many of us guilty in this matter. There is a morbid tenderness among us, which is not the tenderness of Christ. We have spoken of mercy, but not judgment. We have preached many sermons about heaven, but few about hell. We have been carried away by the wretched fear of being thought low, vulgar, and fanatical. We have forgotten that he who judges us is the Lord, and that the man who teaches the same doctrine that Christ taught cannot be wrong. If you would ever be healthy scriptural Christian. I entreat you to give hell a place in your theology. Establish it in your mind as a fixed principle that God is a God of judgment as well as mercy. That the same everlasting counsels which laid the foundation of the bliss of heaven have also laid the foundation of the misery of hell. Keep in full view in your mind that all who die unpardoned and unrenewed are utterly unfit to be in the presence of God and must be lost forever. They are not capable of enjoying heaven they could not be happy there they must go to their own place and that place is hell oh it is a great thing in these days of unbelief to believe the whole bible if you would ever be a healthy scriptural christian i entreat you to beware of any ministry which does not plainly teach the reality and eternity of hell such ministry may be soothing and pleasant, but it is far more likely to lull you to sleep than to lead you to Christ or build you up in the faith. It is impossible to leave out any portion of God's truth without spoiling the whole. That preaching is sadly defective, which dwells exclusively on the mercies of God and the joys of heaven and never sets forth the terrors of the Lord and the miseries of hell. It may be popular. But it is not scriptural. It may amuse and gratify, but it will not save. Give me the preaching which keeps back nothing that God has revealed. You may call it stern and harsh. You may tell us that to frighten people is not the way to do them good. But you are forgetting that the grand object of the gospel is to persuade men to flee from the wrath to come. And that it is vain to expect men to flee unless they are afraid. Well, would it be for many professing Christians that they were more afraid about their souls than they are now, end quote. Ryle wrote that in the 1800s. 
And it has gotten a lot worse since then. Ryle is lamenting that people don't fear God then. Now it is almost non-existence. As Paul says in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Recently, I listened to a radio program where Dr. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Seminary, examined the teachings and ministry of Joel Osteen, who many of you probably know, has the largest church in America and whose services are broadcasted worldwide and listened to by millions. 60 Minutes did a story on him, and so did Larry King Live, asking him questions like, why don't you ever mention the cross? Why don't you ever talk about sin? Why don't you ever talk about hell? Why don't you ever talk about God? (laughs) These are unbelievers asking him these things. But he is a man who believes in positive thinking and encouraging words to motivate people to love God. The problem is he never mentioned sin, the justice of God, the wrath of God, hell, repentance from sin, Christ's death on the cross. He's shed blood for sinners. He preaches a false gospel. He is a heretic. People can't be saved unless they know what they need to be saved from. They need to hear the good news, yes, but they first need to know the bad news so they understand why the good news is good. The gospel is that Jesus Christ did his best, not that we can do our best. Well, Steve says, well, if you have good intentions and you're trying to do your best, well, God's going to let you into heaven. No, he's not. That is a false gospel. The gospel is that Jesus did his best. He lived the perfect life. He died our death on the cross. He suffered in our place as a substitute. He bore God's wrath, God's vengeance, God's anger that abides on any unrepentant sinner. He took that upon himself. He bore the brunt of our punishment so that we, through faith in him, could have the free gift of eternal life. There is no gospel without understanding that Jesus took upon himself God's wrath in our place because we deserve it. John 3.36 makes it pretty clear. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God continuously abides on him. The wrath of God hangs over the head of every unbeliever like a sharpened blade of a guillotine that could drop at any moment. The gospel is that you're in danger. You are in danger right now. You need to run to Christ. In faith, believing in what he did to save you, and then you will be saved. You fail to teach these things, you fail to preach the gospel. You presented Jesus who is only one-sided, he's not Jesus. He is an idol, he's a false god. Paul said in Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Paul says it twice just to make sure. What I meant by being accursed is being accursed. 
Ryle rightly said, he is the kindest friend who tells me the whole extent of my danger. And I would add the corollary. He is the worst of enemies who does not. Who lets you continue in danger and watches. The gospel is about God killing his only begotten son because he had to to satisfy his just fury against us. Now let's look at our text and see what kind of loving friend we have in Jesus who always tells us the truth about the real danger we are in, about the love of God and the justice of God. Now we learn from the latter part of Luke 11 that a crowd has gathered to hear Jesus. In the crowd are some religious leaders, and those religious leaders have accused Jesus of doing miracles by the power of Satan. Jesus then explains the stupidity of such a, an accusation as Satan cannot war against Satan, otherwise his kingdom would fall. Jesus then threatens judgment on both the religious leaders and the crowd, saying, listen, if you don't believe in me as the Messiah, you are going to perish. Then the religious leaders have this idea. They decide to have Jesus over for lunch. But of course, they have evil motives. Their real motive is not to feed him lunch. Their real motive is to talk to him, trying to get him to say some something false so that they can accuse him and discredit him further in the eyes of the people so that more people won't believe in him. There are Pharisees there and lawyers are scribes. Jesus then knows their evil motive at lunch. He then rebukes them and exposes them and calls first the Pharisees and then the lawyers hypocrites headed for hell. He then leaves the house. They are angry. They're hotter than hornets. They're buzzing after him, firing questions at him. Jesus then walks out. He encounters his disciples who are there sitting, waiting for him to get through with lunch. There might be a hundred, maybe 200 of them, a large group of men and women who have professed Jesus as their Messiah. Beyond them is a crowd of thousands, so many thousands, Luke says, that they were stepping on one another. And Jesus walks up to his disciples and he says, beware of the religious hypocrisy of these religious leaders behind me because it is both contagious and damning. And then he says what he does in our text this morning. Look at it. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 9. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, and yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now from this text, I started to point out to you last week, four God given incentives for fearing God and not men. So that when your time of persecution comes, you won't cave in to the fear of men. We looked at the first point last week. Don't be afraid to die at the hands of men. Why is Jesus even addressing this? Well, because the religious leaders who are angry, furious at Jesus, who are standing behind Jesus, are the most powerful people in the Jewish community. Jesus is making them 
very angry. The disciples are associating themselves publicly with Jesus. And Jesus knows that if persecution breaks out against him, it's going to break out against his followers and that his followers are going to be scared of this because the whole crowd has rejected Jesus because the religious leaders have rejected Jesus and now they're siding with Jesus in front of everybody. And so Jesus decides to address the fear of man. And he says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. And then he explains who we should fear. Be afraid to die by the hand of God. Look at verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. This is an interesting phrase. The NIV and the New King James translate it, I will show you whom to fear, which is probably the best translation. The word warn means to show by example or to teach by example, or to give an example to follow. It is a future tense verb, which means Jesus is saying to them this, I will in the future be an example to you to follow, so that you can see how not to fear men. Of course, we know that Jesus ultimately did this in dying on the cross when he was led like a lamb to the slaughter that was silent before its shears. He didn't open his mouth. He endured the cross, despising shame, never sinning, never complaining. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, never fearing men and trusting his soul to God. So what kind of fear should we have if we are to not fear men? Look at the middle of verse five. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Again, Jesus uses the same intensive form of the word kill, which means to slaughter, to slay by any means imaginable. He just got through using this in verse four when he says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body for after that, there's no more than they can do. He's saying, don't be afraid of those who could kill you in any way you might imagine. He says, on the contrary, fear him who after he can kill you by any way you could imagine has authority to cast you into hell. When it comes down to it, who is responsible for when and how we die? It's God. We all know that. Um, Though men may kill us, God is sovereign over who dies and how they die and when they die. Because God is the one who appoints our days. God is the one who is sovereign over our life and all the details of our life. Proverbs 16.33 reminds us the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Just, um, Just think about the degree of God's sovereignty. Even when you flip a coin and it lands heads or tails, it's every decision is not based on chance, but who? The Lord. He is sovereign even over the smallest details of life. Do you remember how Isaiah describes God in Isaiah 25, 1? Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect Faithfulness, that is, with perfect faithfulness, you execute them. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 
says, remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. And you might read this and say, well, yeah, surely, obviously, he's declared the end from the beginning, and, and he has certain plans that he accomplishes, but just, just how comprehensive are those? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.11 when he says that God works all things after the counsel of his will. Every one of them. All of them. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 139.16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book, were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Before you were born, God already determined how long you would live, how you would die, when you would die. God is sovereign over it all. On a hillside above a high, the highway, there's a, there's a gopher digging around some rock. The rock comes loose. It starts rolling down towards the highway. It begins to gain speed. It's not a very large rock. And then along the highway is coming a man. He's talking to his wife uh, on his cell phone. And with perfect precision, the rock just flies through the window, strikes the man in the head, and kills him instantly. He in turn then swerves into oncoming traffic and hits a head a car head-on that has four people in it. The driver of that car is killed instantly. The three others are, are pretty much unscathed. Why does that happen? I mean, the newspapers reported a tragic accident, you know, happened on highways such and such. What do you think about when you hear that? What do you know? How do you make sense of that? This was God's timing for those two people who died. And that's why they died at this time in that way. The Christian knows God is sovereign over everything. I want to show you a couple texts in Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. The first is in that series of letters written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And this is the church of Smyrna that is being talked to by Christ through this messenger. And that church is undergoing persecution. And in verse 10 of Revelation 2, we read this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Did you see that? Jesus knows they're going to be persecuted. Jesus allows them to be persecuted and he knows some of them are going to die because of their faith in him. And he lets it happen. Turn over to Revelation chapter 6. This is really spooky. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. The church has been raptured. Believers are coming to Christ on earth. The seals of judgment are being poured out on the earth. 
And we read this starting in verse 9. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Notice what they say here. Oh, Lord, when are you going to give them their best life now? No. These souls, these believers who have died for their faith in Christ, who are now perfect and sinless, cry out for God's vengeance to be executed on the people who remain on earth. Some of them, their relatives. Look at verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a while, a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. It is God's will, Christ's will that some people die for their faith. Turn over to Revelation chapter 12. It's about the midpoint of the tribulation. Things are getting very bad. John is describing Satan being permanently cast down to earth after a war in heaven. And John says this in Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. What is the common denominator in all these groups of people? The common denominator is they feared God and not men unto death. And this is the kind of commitment. And the commitment that is produced from a proper fear of God that Jesus wants every Christian to have. This isn't some, you know, fanatical subset of Christianity. This is normal biblical Christianity that those who know Christ and understand who he is would fear him to the degree they would rather die for Christ than fear men and cave in to the desires of men. Our text exhorts us to fear two things. Notice Fear, verse 5, we are to fear the executioner himself. Fear the one. And then later on in the verse, yes, I tell you, fear him. And secondly, to fear the authority of the executioner because he has authority to cast you into hell. Now, let's just consider both of these a little bit further. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, fear the one. Now, who's that? Who is the one we are to fear? Now, if you are thinking in your mind and answering, well, it's God, you are correct. But if you answered Jesus, the Savior, you are more accurately correct. 
Because the one who is going to judge the living and the dead is the Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the judge. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Peter here is preaching to some Gentiles. Acts chapter 10. He's preaching to some Gentiles the gospel. And starting in verse 40, Peter, speaking of Jesus, says, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Notice that the apostles and all preachers are commanded not to be flippant, not to be disrespectful, not to be uh, pulpit jokesters, but to be those who solemnly, that is soberly, testify that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. So that people know their danger, so that they repent of their sins, place their faith in Christ, and receive the forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel. Turn over to Acts chapter 17. If Peter isn't good enough, let's see what Paul does. As he is at Mars Hills, preaching to the Greeks there. He's preaching the gospel. This is the punchline to his sermon. Notice what he tells them. These aren't Jews. These aren't people who know the Bible. These are people who scoff at the resurrection. And Paul ends this way, verse 30 of Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. What is repentance anyways? Repentance is merely to have a change of mind about who you are and what you are trusting in, what you are living for. It is really the negative side of faith. Faith is positively trusting in Jesus. Repentance is letting go of whatever you're living for before you trust in Jesus. You know, it's leave L.A. and fly to New York. You can't fly to New York unless you leave L.A. It's a necessary thing. So you can't leave whatever you're living for to receive Jesus unless you leave it. That's what he's talking about. That all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And that tells you exactly who that man is. Notice the gospel here is Jesus will judge you unless you repent. That is the gospel. You're in danger. I mean, there is no good news 
unless you hear the bad news. The bad news is you're in danger if you don't know Christ. Paul charges preachers in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. The motivation to preach the word, preach everything in the word, is you're in the presence of the judge of the living and the dead. And he'll judge you. The word of God affirms over and over again that the judge of the living and the dead is none other than the savior of the living and the dead. They're one and the same. Jesus, the sweet, compassionate, loving savior is also the wrathful God. They're not two different people. They're one and the same. Jesus is both savior and judge savior today. Judge in the future. You reject him as savior today. You get judgment in the future. If you say you believe in God and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, you don't fear God enough. Jesus speaks to this very issue in John chapter 5 verses 21 through 24. He presents himself as savior and judge and listen to what he says starting in verse 21. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life. Even so, the son also gives life to whom he wishes for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son, even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death unto life. Notice here, Jesus presenting the gospel. I am the judge. I will judge you. And you need to know I will judge you so that you will honor me. If you don't honor me, you don't honor me and you don't honor my father and I will judge you. You fear me, you honor me, I will save you and give you everlasting life. No honor of Jesus, no fear of Jesus, no salvation. It's clear. If you hear Jesus's word, he says, which means to hear so as to obey and you believe and honor him and the father, then great. If not hell, Jesus is telling the religious leaders in our text, you need to fear me for I have authority to kill you by any means I wish and then to cast you into hell. That's what he's telling all these people. He is the judge. Secondly, consider the implications of Jesus's words to your own life. If you, you know, are in junior high or high school or college or single or married, you are to fear Jesus. You are to fear Jesus. This is good to fear Jesus. It's bad not to fear Jesus. The fear of Jesus should move you to turn from your sin. When you think of indulging in that little sin, you should stop. And remember that you Have a savior who is holy and just. You are to listen to me preach. And you are to hear God's word. You are to respond to that word in faith. This is what Jesus wants you to do. He wants you to believe it. He is the savior. He is the judge. Both. That's Jesus. Let's just say one day I'm preaching away. I'm really into it like I get sometimes. 
And all of a sudden you hear a noise and you look up and that huge speaker cluster right above me is starting to come loose. You see the cable starting to come loose. And your eyes get wide. You look around and other people see that it's coming loose. I can see on your faces, your eyes are wide. And I just think, man, the spirit's moving. (laughs) I mean, this is one of those days, man. People, their eyes are pried open, man. This is great. So I don't even notice it. I just start preaching more. It's like throwing gas on the fire. And so I'm preaching away. And some people out there, they're thinking, oh, oh, I should say something. But I could never stand up in a crowd like this. I mean, it would be too embarrassing. Other people are just frozen with fear. Other people say, well, I would, I would tell him that the speaker classes are going to follow him, but I don't want to, to interrupt the solemn assembly. <laughs> and finally a man jumps up and he says, Pastor Hughes, the speakers are going down. Get out of there. And I get out just in time to have it come down and crush the pulpit and punch a hole in the floor. Now, which person loved me more? (laughs) The person who was frozen in fear? The person who was worried what other people might do if they got up and said something? The person who was too scared to interrupt the solemn assembly? Or the person who said, get out of there! You're going to die! Obviously, the last person. False teachers, heretics, antichrists don't warn people of the danger they are in. They let them stand under the wrath of God, which could break loose and fall upon them at any moment. And they remain silent because they don't love people. Regardless of what they say, they don't love them. You need to fear Jesus, for he is the judge of the living dead. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That's what motivated Paul, the apostle. Fearing Christ, his Savior, he witnessed to other people that they might not end up in hell. Jesus secondly gives us a specific reason for fearing him in our text. It's because he has authority to cast in, cast you into hell. Now, the doctrine of hell has fallen on very hard times, as you know. I mean, just think of all the sermons you've heard on hell in the last five years. Not anybody in the mainstream is preaching on hell. The doctrine of hell is something most preachers have purposely ignored, um, or if they mention it, they kind of cloak it in padded terms. Christless eternity, being lost, dying without Christ. You know what? If you don't love Christ, that those aren't scary. Good. I'm glad. I'm living without Christ now, and I won't mind living without him later. What is worse, an affair or an adulterous relationship? What is worse, living with someone or committing fornication? What is worse, being gay or being a sodomite? Notice the terms are talking all about the same thing. There's no degree of worseness, but one group of terms makes it seem a lot nicer. 
It's kind of like if you were to take cyanide pills and coat them in sugar and put them in a jar that says candy. Now, whenever you take something that's dangerous and you coat it, phrase it, package it so it looks harmless, then it becomes more dangerous than it ever was before. False teachers today are taking Jesus and they're coating him with sugar. They're taking the wrath, the hell, the sin, the judgment out of the gospel. And they're making Jesus more dangerous than ever. Preachers today are failing to preach about hell because they think it's going to drive people away. Well, you know what? It may drive some away. As Thomas Watson says, some preachers sew pillows under their people's heads so they never awake until they're in hell. The word hell is translated, a translation of the word Ghana in our text. And this is a reference to the Valley of Hinnom which runs east and west at the end of the ridge where Jerusalem is built. Jerusalem is today, the main city is built up by the Temple Mount there. That is the newer part of Jerusalem. The old city is the city of David, which is on the lower part of the ridge. And where that ridge empties down and ends in a valley that runs east and west, that is the Valley of Hinnom. It comes towards the the, the uh, east and it, it intersects the Kidron Valley, which runs on down. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31 and 19, verse 6, and several other texts, we learn that an altar was built there to offer child sacrifices to the god Moloch, who was nothing more than an idol. King Josiah, one of the few good kings, tore down that altar, according to 2 Kings 23.10, and since that time, the valley was considered accursed by Jews. Now, what do you do with a prime piece of real estate right outside the capital city that's accursed? You turn it into the city dump. And so from that time, people began to bring their trash there and burn it. All the animal parts and hides and hoofs and bones and guts and garbage and trash would all be brought to the Hinnom Valley to Gehenna and they would then light it on fire so that in that valley there was always a smoke coming up and a rotten stench of animal rotting parts and garbage so that by the time Jesus came along Gehenna became a term a synonym for hell and that is the term that Jesus uses here That we need to fear him because he not only can save you, but he can cast you in to hell. Hell is a place where unbelievers go when they die. It is a place of agonizing torment and flames, but it is not eternal. For hell only lasts for a time until the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers are then resurrected, given new bodies fit for eternal destruction and then are cast into the lake of fire where they then suffer forever and ever. 
Some have taught that hell is nothing more than a place where you go to be eternally burnt up. That eternal torment really means eternal annihilation. Like getting a moth and throwing it into a fire, it would instantly be burnt up and turned into ash and would be gone. But think about that. Why would Jesus use the emphatic statement, yes, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who can cast you into instantaneous annihilation. It would be more fearful to be tortured at the hands of men than to be instantly burnt up, right? Hell would no longer have any fear. It would actually be escape for those who hate God in this life and don't want to submit to Christ. They could just reject him and then instantly be burnt up afterwards. It just doesn't square. It doesn't square with this text and it doesn't square with many others, as we will see next week. So we've seen that Jesus is the one we should fear and that the reason we should fear him is he has authority to cast people into hell since he is the judge of the living and the dead. Lord willing, next week, we are going to examine what the Bible says about hell. And so it's going to be a very fun service. (laughs) If you want to feel good, come next week. But really, we need to get a grip on this. Because it's good for unbelievers to know what hell is like, and it's good for believers to be reminded of what hell is like in all of its gruesomeness. And I want you to know, as gruesome a picture as I might be able to paint of it, it's nothing compared to how bad it really is. Words fail to describe hell in its terrors. But when you understand hell and you understand the terrors of hell, I'm telling you, it is a a bit to hold you back from sin. When you realize that Christ died to save us from that place, that he is the kind of God who is not only savior, but judge, it sobers you up. And it's good to be sober in a wicked world that's constantly asking us to deny our savior by how we think and how we act. So next week, as we return, we're going to look at hell. I'm just warning you, if you want to bring that hard-hearted neighbor, go ahead. Because it's going to be scary. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for what we learned this morning. Father, I know these are hard words to a culture that has been taught to believe that Jesus is nothing but sugar and spice and everything nice. But Father, we know from your word, from the lips of Jesus himself, that he is the judge of the living and the dead. That he will have men honor him or he will judge them. That he is willing to save them if in this life they admit their sin, are willing to turn from their wicked ways and receive Jesus alone as their savior. To trust in his person And his work alone to save them. Father, if there's anybody here who has never done that this morning, I just pray that you would, by your grace, grant them that repentance which is needed for salvation. That they might be saved. That they might have the assurance of eternal life. That they might know that even though they deserve hell, they're not going there. 
because Jesus stepped in and died for them in their place. For the rest of us, Father, I just ask that you would keep us sober, remembering that, yes, we have a great Savior. He is loving. He is compassionate. He is kind. But he is also the judge. He is angry and wrathful against sinners, and he will punish them if they do not choose to escape to himself. Father, we thank you for the whole counsel of your word. May we believe it. May we live it for your honor and glory. Amen.